0: Father, what we are about to do requires your work. We speak and listen all the time, but to speak for you requires that I have your help. And for us to hear from you requires that we all have your help. And so we pray, Lord, we Collectively in each of us, we ask for your help now. And Lord, I pray that what we meditate on as the sermon is, um, is unfolding would be pleasing to you. And that we be changed and different so that we could go out and transform the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I mentioned around the fire, um, last night or yesterday morning, I guess, something like that, all the, all the fires that we had all blended together over the weekend, um, we were talking about just some things that the Lord has done, and I mentioned that we had, over this last month, a pretty significant week, uh, a little bit longer than a week for us. But if you went back into June, um, Zach turned uh, 25 and I turned 50. That was, that was kind of a fun little stretch of a few days, because our birthdays are about three, uh, three days. But that pales in comparison to what happened over this, this one week. You see, on, on uh, the 17th, Jace turned 18, which was kind of monumental for us. It's a big day. Then on the 21st, Josiah turned 21, which was a pretty big thing for us. And then last Sunday, Christine turned 50, which is pretty big for us as well. And uh, I'm not sure if you noticed in there, but a couple of them were kind of numerically powerful as well. Jace missed it by one year, but Joe, 21 on the 21st, significant. Christine, 25, you know, 25th, she turned 25 times two. <laughs> Zach turned 25 on the 25th back in June. And then it kind of, in the midst of all of that, our, our own Zoe moved out of the house and has taken up residence down in Akron. She'll still be with us here for as long as we can guilt her into remaining. <laughs> it was a big week for us, though, and, uh, you know, we're kind of on the other end of it. Like, the the official end of that um, sort of happened last Sunday, um, but we've really been reeling a little bit as a family. Like, these are all good milestones, but they happen just one after another after another, kind of like it's fun to be at the beach, but after hit, being hit by wave after wave, you're a little tired, you know? And we just realized this, this one week was really significant for us. It was a short period of time, but it really had a, a monumental impact. And I bring that up not just to brag about the fact that we, hey, look, we're aging. I'm not sure exactly what, you know, you brag about with that. Um, but to say that that kind of thing is what happens in every single gospel. And if you've read the gospels, you kind of know that. That the bulk of three years of Jesus' ministry... Matthew and Luke touch on a little bit of stuff that's kind of Christmas-related. But the bulk of Jesus' ministry is about three years long. And usually that takes up to about half to two-thirds of the book. But then a week, what has been known in Christianity as the Passion Week beginning with what we're just reading here, the triumphal entry. We revisit this every year, don't we? Because we have Palm Sunday, that's part of our religious calendar. Easter Sunday is the end of that week, and so we take a week to talk about a week. That's not what we're doing in Mark. We're going to be talking about a week, but it's going to take us about six months. Now, Christmas is in there, so we'll skip December. And we're going to do the Psalms in January, so you could you know, kind of scratch that out of there. But we're going to be preaching for about four months, On one week, because Mark 1 through 10 has covered everything leading up to that week, and 11 through 16 is essentially going to take us uh, the rest of just this one week. This is the way all of the Gospels are structured they introduce Jesus and then they focus on the week. Because much like life in the Lander household, this week is incredibly significant have you been tracking with what's been going on in Mark? Uh, and I kind of revisited what had happened in Mark 8, 9, and 10. That's where we've been lately. But before that, Jesus has been doing a, a lot of kind of reintroduction to people who thought they knew the way that life worked. He's met some of the powerful pagans of the time, and he's reoriented the way that they've thought. He's reintroduced life and the kingdom of God to the religious Jews of his day. And then he's also met a bunch of outsiders, and he's treated them all kind of the same. He doesn't play favorites. And in fact, if he does play favorites, it seems to be to the neglected and to the outcasts, the children of the world, the poor of the world. And so Jesus has been doing this massive re-education campaign. And in the middle of it, though, he's been doing some stuff. There have been people, Bartimaeus, like we just met last week, who had great need, and Jesus met that need. So it's not as though he hasn't been busy, but we could say that in some ways, this has been a real re-education campaign kind of leading up to this moment. There will still be teaching Jesus will do over this next week. But for the most part, what we want to do as we're reading this is, and I just say this as, as one of us, right? We read the Bible, and we ask where we fit, We read the Bible and we try to figure out, what am I supposed to do? I read the Bible and I try to figure out, what am I supposed to imitate? What am I supposed to reject? And in one sense, those are all really good impulses because we don't want to read the Bible as a historical document that we're just sort of getting presented to us as though we learn more facts and get an A in church, and then we walk out. I'm glad to push back against the academic-only impulse. But I just want to warn you, if for the next four months of, this, of our time in this book, you primarily hear the, the teaching from the Passion Week about what you're supposed to do, who you're supposed to become, and what you're supposed to imitate, you're going to miss the significance of the week. Much like we've said about the Gospel of Mark, this is the story of Jesus. And we're changed by knowing Him, not first by imitating Him. We love because He loves we become like his character the more we study his character. And so we're going to try to do, and this is the main question I'm asking, is what are we to observe about the triumphal entry? And again, this is not to say that there shouldn't be ways that we're affected by it, that, that ways that our character being errant and ungodly ought to be reformed. But it begins by observing. It begins by us taking a very familiar story and asking again, what do we see? What do we hear? What is going on? And yet, I want to give away everything because Jesus did right before this anyway. Three times over 8, 9, and 10, he said, we're going to Jerusalem for rejection and death. Ultimate resurrection, but rejection, suffering, shame, and death. That's why we're going. I mentioned a while ago that every time we heard the word Jerusalem in the Book of Mark, we should hear that proverbial bum bum bum, because it's a significant city. Jesus has been largely in the north. He's been out in the wilderness. He's he's healed someone, and somebody could add to his popularity. And Jesus decides instead nah, we're not going to do that right now. I'd rather you didn't say anything because I'd really rather have some time to just go out and not have a lot of crowds. And there is going to be a massive shift in the campaign here starting with this Sunday. Jesus is about to go public. He's about to enter in, and he has told the disciples, we are going to Jerusalem so that the Son of Man might die. And the, the disciples, for the most part, never got it. For three chapters, we kind of joined along with the disciples and recognized how frequently we miss it, because we take Jesus' mission of suffering that leads to glory, and we figure that that means glory for us that should eliminate suffering. It's sort of backward thinking, but it's just what we have to confess— The disciples do it. Jesus explains what's going to happen to him. They're arguing about who's the best. They figure that these are little kids. They don't deserve to be in our circles. There are other people who are doing good works and they're not part of our team. So let's get rid of them. And Jesus has to push back over and over and over and say, if you don't embrace the mindset you're about to see lived out over the next week, you'll miss the entire purpose of why I've been here for 33 years. And we as a church have to make sure that we do the same thing. So we're just going to slow down But, listen to J.C. Ryle, who's going to give away the ending. Here it is. What are we to observe about the triumphal entry? We observe this. He came to Jerusalem to die. And he desired that all Jerusalem should know it. When he taught the deep things of the Spirit, he often spoke to none but his apostles. When he delivered his parables, he often addressed none but a a multitude of poor and ignorant Galileans. When he worked his miracles, he was generally at Capernaum or in the land of Zebulun or Naphtali. But when the time came that he should die, he made a public entry into Jerusalem. He drew the attention of rulers and priests and elders and scribes and Greeks and Romans to himself. He knew that the most wonderful event that ever happened in this world was about to take place. The eternal Son of God was about to suffer in the stead of sinful man. The great sacrifice for sin about to be offered up. The great Passover land about to be slain. The great atonement for a world's sin about to be made. He therefore ordered it so that his death was eminently a public death. So let us see here one more proof of the unspeakable importance of the death of Christ. Let us treasure up his gracious sayings. Let us strive to walk in the steps of his holy life. Let us prize his intercession and long for his second coming. But let us never forget that the crowning fact in all we know of Jesus Christ is his death upon the cross. From that death, blows all our hopes Amen. indeed quite the spoiler for what this week is going to uh, be about but then again so was every song that we sang this morning so that's okay it's just good to remember that the moments you want to have public in your life and the moments you want to have hidden from your life are about to be entirely reversed in jesus mind His great moments of healing, his great moments of teaching, largely does them unnoticed. His moment of naked, shame-bearing suffering in the stead of sinners, where he would not simply be kind of, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, okay, I'll take the credit, even though we all know I'm great. No. He would come as a servant and be treated As a servant, he would come as a slave of all and be treated like the worst of the slaves of all. His most naked moment was to be his most public moment. That's where this week is leading. And so we have to start by making sure that we're hearing everything that Mark is trying to help us. We're seeing everything that Mark wants us to see so that we're sensing what Mark wants us to sense. So let's start. I'm going to take passage or the verses. You've heard it all kind of read, and I'm going to take the verses a little bit, some here, some there. So just kind of bear with me. But The first thing that we need to hear is this point that J.C. Rowell just made. We need to hear that Jesus' mission is turning public. Verse 1 says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem... Bum, 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 They're coming finally to Jerusalem. If you remember watching The Chosen with us, remember Peter's energy? What, what are we doing? You're turning water into wine in front of like nobody. You're doing some stuff with fish in front of me and a couple of my friends. You're doing these private, powerful miracles. Why are we not going public? And after Samaria, kind of as it ends, at one point, Jesus says it's it's time we're making this known. And Peter's energy is just so palpable at that moment. He's like, yes, yes, I've waited for everybody to be able to see who Jesus is. And there's this sense that it's been that way for 10 chapters in Mark. When will everybody get to see? When will we go to Jerusalem? Bum, bum, bum. No, no, no. When will we go to Jerusalem where the Son of Man suffers? Where will we go to Jerusalem where the Son of Man is shamed and naked? And they're making their way past Bethany, the home of Mary, Martha, Lazarus, more of a significant city in the Gospel of John, for instance. But the Mount of Olives, (laughs) a prophetic point of messianic importance, looking out down the valley and back up to Jerusalem. To be able to see the moment that every pilgrim would really, so that every Thanksgiving over the river and through the woods to grandmother's house we go. Every Passover over the Mount of Olives and down the valley to Jerusalem up we go. Everybody knows that trip. Everybody knows that view. And that's what Mark is highlighting right here. They're drawing near to Jerusalem. And when they finally get there, what happens? Skip ahead to verse 8. Many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And all of those who went before and all of those who follow behind are shouting. This is exactly the opposite of what Jesus has asked for in the past. You've healed me. What should I do? Say nothing. Don't go yelling. And now everyone who's there before and behind, are shouting the arrival of the king. And they're using messianic language to do it because he's riding in in a way that isn't just like every other pilgrim making their way to Passover. He's riding in with his eyes on Zechariah. Zechariah, who said in chapter nine, "'Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, but humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations.'" Like Christmas carols, this was one of the verses that was always remembered. It was just part of the annual psyche of expectation of what was going to happen when the Messiah would come. It's not just Messianic, though. See, what's happening here has a, a real sense of kind of pointing to something that had taken place. And it's probably most noted when a king named Jehu, you probably don't know Jehu too well, but you might know a king named Ahab. Ahab was one of the worst kings of all of Israel. His wife Jezebel was definitely the worst queen of, in all of Israel. The 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 just sold out dedication to idol worship that marked the northern tribes and the, the nation of Israel during the time when Ahab reigned and when Jezebel reigned, well, it was just catastrophic. If you didn't line up, you were complete You want to talk cancel culture? I mean, Go read that. And you realize, okay, we've got a little ways to go before things get too bad in our country. The the Elijah, prophets of Baal, that's that time. Jehu was anointed by a prophet to clean house. Sadly, he wasn't a really great king. He wasn't what you'd consider a good king because none of the kings in Israel really were at that time. But he did get rid of a lot of the problems. And at the moment when he was sort of, you know, put, called out to be king, not quite his crowning, but his moment of proclamation, what everybody did who heard that was to take off their cloaks and lay them on the stairs where he was. It was this moment that was really significant in all of Israel and Judah's history because it was the moment when Ahab's reign was wiped away and a a real reform came about. And it was marked by the laying down of cloaks right in front of the king, where everybody recognized, I'm taking what's mine and I'm laying it before you because you are more important than I am. And that's happening here in the front of Jerusalem. It's not just that, but the way that a king would make his approach into a city, very significant. If he comes riding the beast of war, he's got war intentions for the city. But if he comes a little bit more humble, as Zechariah says, humble and mounted on a donkey, then what he's intending is to bring peace to the city. And there's expectation laid all over this. Some of it messianic, some of it military, just all of it cultural, all of it laden with expectation. And the main thing is Jesus isn't shying away from any of it. Like Brad said last week, the blind were healed, and when the blind get healed, people are paying attention. But most of the time, when Jesus has done messianic stuff, he's done it, and everybody's like, Is this the time? Nah, no. And here we are. He's saying, Yep, eyes on me, everybody. What's going to happen this next week matters. It's time for us to go public so that the world might know why I'm here. First thing we got to sense is just how different this is in Mark that Jesus. Is gone public. Second thing we've got to see though is just how powerful Jesus really is in this moment. And you might not catch it, so look again. Jesus sent two of his disciples. Verse 2 continues this way. And he said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Now that might not seem like anything other than the story I think I've told before about the time when my Zach was, you know, he was a lot littler, but he was the biggest of my littles at the time. And my neighbor, who had miniature horses, asked, would you like to put one of your kids on the back of one of my horses? And clearly, I was alone without my wife at that moment to make this decision, because I think wiser heads would have prevailed. But I thought, yes, Zach, you want to do this. And Zach rode my enthusiasm, and said, yes, that would be a great idea. Well, these horses had been kind of biting at each other, and apparently when he set Zach on the back of the horse, Zach's little heel hit one of the open wounds, and this little horse um, scared absolutely every one of us. The owner of the horse, the owner of the child, we were all terrified for what was about to happen to Zach, because this was a horse that didn't want to be ridden. And you've got to think, when your big moment comes, wouldn't it be the best idea to take an untested factor and just push it forward publicly? That would be the best way to see how this could work. Beyond the lack of what might seem like wisdom, of taking Jesus, the most important figure, and putting him on a colt of a donkey that's never seen anything like this happen to him before, there's actually a little bit of sort of religious significance. Listen to these two texts. This is Moses talking both in Numbers and then later on to a different generation in Deuteronomy. He says, tell the people of Israel to bring to you a red heifer without defect in which there is no blemish, which is the sort of thing that we often hear. If something's going to be sacrificed, you don't want it to be some of the worst of your flock. You want it to be some of the best, right? So no blemish, but here's another factor of it. On which a yoke has never come. He says the same thing then later in Deuteronomy. Take a heifer that's never been worked and that is not pulled in a yoke. In other words, there was a ceremonial purity that came with not taking a beast of burden, but taking something that had never labored in a field and dedicating it to a very special purpose. That's probably a bit of what's behind this, why Jesus is saying this is the kind of cold I want you to find. Here's where you're going to go find it. And I'm going to, we're going to take this and we're going we're to use this as, as what's there. But there's something a little bit more significant, I think, than just the ceremonial aspects of it. Some of the power of Jesus' ministry, in my mind, comes out of the way that Job gets a talking to from God at the very end of the book. Remember the book of Job? The beginning of it is a guy who everything is going really well, and it's like the the typical country song, right? Right? Like, I was doing great, and then God killed my servants, and I was doing great, and then people came and stole all my cattle, and then God, I was doing great, and then all my sons and daughters died. It's a really depressing song in the very beginning of the book of Job. The end of it is kind of like, you know, every, like, you know, sort of sappy movie you've ever seen, right? And it's, Job gets everything back. Most of the book of Job is how to be a really crummy counselor. And we should probably preach this book sometime because we'd learn a lot about how to blame people for the bad things that happen in their lives. That's the bulk of the book of Job. The most instructive part, though, is after Job has been complaining for a while and after his friends have been trying to figure out which sins are causing all the problems in his life, God decides he's going to speak. And if you've read Job 38, 39, right in that section... You hear these kinds of questions from God. Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions? No. Okay, I can. Just so you know, every one of these questions has a, Job, can you? The implied answer is, no, I can. So here are the questions. Do you know when the mountain mountain goats give birth? Do you know who has let the wild donkey go free? Is the wild ox willing to serve you? Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads his wings toward the south? All of those? Yeah, no. no, 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 no. And just so you know, I'm skipping massive parts of this. Every one of those was a category. The title sentence to a paragraph. The question that helps Job to understand, you are so small and I am so different than you. Power resides in me. Understanding resides in me. Can you do any of these things? No, 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 no. But God's not done. He says, behold, behemoth, which I made as I made you. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. His bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs like bars of iron. So can one take him by the eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? Job, no. God, yep, I can. Can you draw a Leviathan with a fish hook? Or press down his tongue with a cord? No, I can't. Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle (laughs) and you'll never do it again. This will be a mistake you don't repeat. Job, these are my pets. These are the little things I made and I lead around and if you even were in their presence, they would terrify you. But I, the God of creation, made and sustain and control all creatures. Why does that matter? Because when the cult, the untested cult, comes out, it says they brought the cult to Jesus And he sat on it. And it did his bidding. Remember that terrible moment in Israel's history? This is before they're a nation, back in the day when they're still trying to figure out their identity, and they don't even really understand God very well because they think that they can use the Ark of the Covenant and bring it into battle as a good luck charm. Without respect for who God is, they figure, let's just take the Ark of the Covenant. Because that Ark of the Covenant, we don't have to really obey God. We can just have God. We can just bring God and use God. We don't have to revere God or honor God. But we'll just bring him into the battle the way that Joshua did whenever that went around Jericho. And remember that story that it fell? We're just getting, we're just getting the battle handed to us here. And so what we need to do is we need to go and assert our dominance. Let's do that with the Ark of the Covenant. And they bring it out. And what happens? The Philistines capture it. Now, behind the scenes, the Philistines, thinking they've gotten the good luck charm of the Israelites, take the good luck charm, and from city to city to city, they parade it around, and every one of their temple deities falls on their faces, and their hands break off, and they're bowing down. It's just, it's a moment where the Philistines are like, we really probably shouldn't keep this around anymore. There's like, We're all getting sick, and all of our gods are being humbled. Something bad is happening in our turf. So we're going to have to do something with this ark, but what do we do? And if you remember, their plan is to take two cows that are nursing at the time, right? So cows that want relief from the pressure that's building up, and put their babies over here. So the calves are over there. The cows are now going to pull this cart with the Ark of the Covenant, and just see what happens. Now what happens? The cows go completely against what they're supposed to be doing by nature, and they take the cart away from their calves, back up into the land of the people of Israel, and the Philistines recognize, yeah, this was a horrible mistake from beginning to end. So the Israelites are making mistakes. They're not in charge. They recognize that the Philistines are making mistakes. They're not in charge. They recognize that who's in charge the God of creation, who's supposed to be represented by the Ark of the Covenant, is exerting his power even over, to the very end of the story, even over the forces that would drive the urgings of these beasts. And the one who could draw Leviathan with a hook and the one who could take and pierce the nose of Behemoth, the one who's sort of set everything in place from mountain goats to, to horses with their manes to hawks soaring over the planet. He's decided to come and sit on a donkey that shouldn't be obeying him and it obeys him because the God of creation is powerfully making his way and to Jerusalem. It's not a big point in the story, but it seems massively significant. Jesus is going public. Jesus is going to Jerusalem with power. And lastly, Jesus is going under this prophetic mandate. And the, the prophetic mandate is both kind of personal in the beginning of the story. And you notice that everything in the story kind of happened twice it's an interesting way of telling the story right i mean by the time mark is kind of getting to the second part of it you're like we we heard this didn't we well that's kind of mark's point mark says here's where jesus words go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it you will find a colt tied up and if anybody says why are you doing this here's what you say in other words jesus says you go on ahead here's what you'll find here's what they'll say Beginning of the story, kind of phase one. Phase two, they go in, and what happens? Exactly what Jesus said. They found the colt, verse four. They went away, found the colt, and then what happened? Somebody who saw them doing it asked, ex- asked the question exactly as Jesus said they would ask the question. Some of those standing there said to him, "Why are you do- what are you doing untying this colt? In other words, Jesus is foreseeing the event before the event actually takes place. And you could probably, if you wanted to, kind of explain away some of the details. It's just, I don't think that's the way Mark's telling the story. He's saying, this is what Jesus says, and then this is exactly what happens. What seems to be the point for Mark? Jesus is kind of on a mini level, sort of as a microcosm, kind of demonstrating this prophetic urgency that's going to mark what's happening over this next week. And he's entering in, letting you know prophecy is about to be fulfilled. And that's why Jenna read to us from Psalm 118. Because what we read in Psalm 118 is the repetition of what the people say in verse 9. Those before and those following are shouting these words Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming of the King kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And that, that Hosanna word, that's kind of an Easter word for us, right? It's part of our Easter hymns and stuff. It, just, it, it doesn't mean Hosanna in the original. That's just the way the word is, you know, kind of crafted. But the word means what we read in Psalm 118. This is the day the Lord has made. That's not Hosanna. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. That's not Hosanna. Save us. That's Hosanna. So Psalm 118 could read, This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Hosanna, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. You realize what's been happening Passover after Passover after Passover after Passover has been pointing to this Passover. And that's what Mark is pointing out to us from the very beginning. Every time the people came to Jerusalem, they'd be looking for one they could say Hosanna to. And there had been many messiahs. There had been many in the story of Israel who would fulfill what seemed to be the prophetic sort of longings that came from the very beginning of the stories of the New Testament. Or sorry, the stories of the Old Testament. So from the Garden of Eden on, there was a promise. The serpent really screwed this up. But somebody's going to crush his head. Was it going to be one of Adam and Eve's sons? Because that'd be great. There seems to be a good one. Oh, he just got killed. I guess it wasn't going to be him. Was it going to be the replacement from him? Was it going to be any of their kids? Was it going to be any of these kids? Finally, we get to the spot that the whole world, aside from one family, is just corrupt. And that that whole promise that somebody is going to actually defeat the darkness and crush the head of the serpent, it doesn't seem to be coming true at all. The serpent is winning over the entire planet. And so God floods the entire earth, saves a remnant But that theme happens over and over in the Old Testament. Every time it seems like things might go well and we might have a hero, even Noah, the one who saved his family from the flood, at the end of it, man, he's getting drunk, hammered, and he has to just absolutely be kind of like covered all of his shame. He's not the guy we've been looking for. Is Abraham the guy we've been looking for? Absolutely not. This guy's a coward. Is Isaac? Nope, he's repeating the sins of his father. Is Jacob? No, absolutely not. Is Joseph? Oh, he's he's the closest we're getting it seems, but not even him. And then later, and then later would it be Moses? No, it's not Moses. Moses is going to be staying in the promised land. He's not going. Would it be any of the judges? Would it be Samuel or his family? Would it be any of these that are coming through, either the kings or the priests? Finally, David arrives on the scene, and we're thinking, it clearly wasn't Saul. At least we've got a man here after God's own heart, one who God said, I'm going to build your house, and it's not going to fall. Finally, the serpent crusher has come. And then Bathsheba. It's not him. And if we just keep telling the story, you know that we find that seems so familiar about the Old Testament is that it mirrors your story. Because you've had those moments that it seemed like you were doing well. And then if we had to tell your story with honesty, we'd say, no, this is definitely not the one in whom all humanity should look. This is not the one to save us from our plague. This is not the one to crush the head of the serpent. But finally, he's here. Finally, humanity can cry out with one voice, Hosanna, save us. Because you're the one we've been waiting for. The Passover after Passover, feast after feast, approach after approach, carol after carol, we have been waiting and longing for you and you've come. But you notice one other thing about this story? It's not just the power and the prophecy and the public nature of it. It's how pitiable his story really seems. And I read it in verse 3. If any one of you says, if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Here's your answer. The Lord has need of it. You had to borrow a donkey, guys. Yes, a public ministry. Yes, a powerful ministry. Yes, one that would fulfill prophecy, but one marked by extreme poverty. And not just extreme poverty, but as he's told it, so many other elements that are going to make us pity him as this week unfolds. All that should have been done to us will be done to him. And when Paul's looking back on this story, and he's trying to make sense of a narrative of a king who would suffer in order to save, he says the following. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Why? So that you, through that poverty, might become rich. That's the story we're going to be in for the next six months. So let's pray and ask that the Spirit helps us not to miss it. Father, we are so grateful that you sent our King, our Savior, the one to whom we could cry out, we need your salvation. We're grateful that you sent our King exactly as we needed him to arrive. Not to conquer us, but to come humbly so that he could understand us. And to suffer so that he might save us. Father, this last week we have all felt our poverty. We have all felt our need and we have all felt our rebellion. We recognize you could very justifiably have ridden into our lives ready to conquer and ready to judge. But we exalt Jesus. And we lift up his name because though he was worthy of every bit of glory, he deprived himself of it in order to rescue us. Lord, I pray, help us to pay attention this next week of his life over this next half year of ours and would you change us would you make us more grateful for him help us to understand him and to imitate him more but may that begin by us recognizing simply how desperate we were for him and how grateful we are he came